0: Hello and welcome to Medic in the Middle. Medic in the Middle is a podcast series hosted by myself, a registered paramedic, Tom Alderson, working within the West Midlands. Medic in the Middle is a podcast series aiming to explore a range of different topics, issues and articles. This series will feature a range of guests from different pre-hospital and in-hospital specialties. This episode is going to explore ventricular assist devices and specifically left ventricular assist devices or LVAD as it's more commonly known. I was lucky enough to catch up with Philippa Adoherty over a video call who's a specialist LVAD nurse and coordinator at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham which is one of the UK's main LVAD centres. So without further ado let's delve into this episode and hear what Philippa had to share with us about LVAD devices. Elvad, you're going to be the absolute lead on this because I've got a very basic kind of understanding. Yeah. So do you want to just um, start by, because there's going to be people listening to this at a later date, just yeah. kind of by telling us about like your role and um, and what you're involved in on sure. a day-to-day kind of basis and what department you work in.
1: Yeah so I'm a heart and lung transplant coordinator and uh, one of the LVAD nurses here at the QE Um, My day-to-day job is I'm predominantly look after the LVADs, but um, we also see patients that are being assessed for potential transplant and LVAD. Um, We also run clinics every day um, to look after patients post-op. We look after them for the rest of their lives, um, whether they've had an LVAD or a heart or lung transplant. So we run a -a 24-hour-a-day emergency helpline. Um, And we're on call for transplant as well. So out of hours, the patients can either call us if there's um, any sort of emergency issues, anything they're concerned about. We quite often get calls from paramedics or local hospitals if our patients are unwell and get admitted there. Um, And then, of course, we look at donor offers. Um, So we call patients in for potential heart or lung transplant so it's quite um, a diverse role, but yeah, we all, yeah. it's enough members of our team that we all have a particular speciality. Um, so my speciality is LVAD, which is why you're talking to me today.
0: <laughs> okay, brilliant. So can we just start off with the very, very basics of what what is LVAD? So LVAD is like, a, as far as, my, I'll tell you my understanding, then please do tell me if I'm, if I'm wrong. Um, but it is essentially a left ventricular assist device. It's like a device that's used to synthetically assist with mechanical circulatory support. Um, they, there's mainly the ones that we're going to be kind of looking at today is the implantable ones but there are external ones as well isn't there and then the pump aims essentially to just drain blood from the left ventricle kind of there's a little output of the the apex of the left ventricle and it kind of goes back around into the aorta yeah. and then it's powered by external batteries which the patient wears on their hips or wherever the
1: yeah so these patients all have end-stage heart failure and for whatever reason if you have a bad inserted it's because for x y or z reason you don't currently meet the criteria to have a heart transplant um, that might be if the pressure from the right ventricle to the lungs is too high and we know that those patients will reject a heart transplant. Um, the other thing that we could offer them is the LVAD so it does the job of unloading the left ventricle which by proxy then offloads the right ventricle relieving Mm. pressure and hopefully getting those patients to a point where they would be fit to go on the implant list. Um, If a patient does have an LVAD we would reassess them at six months after implantation to see if those pressures have come down enough that we could offer them listing on the routine heart transplant waiting list but to be honest with you with organ shortages in the UK Patient is on the routine waiting list, they're not going to get a heart transplant. Um hmm. so we if a patient has a bad inserted, unless there's some sort of horrible complication, um, whether they, you know, they get severe line sepsis, which you know, we we cannot get rid of without taking the whole thing out, including the heart, um, or if there's some sort of terrible pump malfunction, which is very unusual, um, that they're gonna live with the bad for the rest of their lives. So that's what yeah.
0: That so had. essentially it's like it's end stage um, heart failure patients or people who are waiting for a transplant, but often these transplants don't come up or X, Y and Z, so they tend to live with them yeah. um, for I the rest of their lives.
1: consider it to be a palliative procedure Um mm. because, you know, it, even once you get to transplant, the clock starts at the time you get your transplant. So um either way you look at it, whether they're living with a heart transplant or an LVAD, it really is. End-stage heart failure, and there's yes. a lot more that we could do once they run into complications down the line.
0: Uh, mm-hmm. So it's going to extend their their kind of expect their life expectancy for a few years or something like that, and then it's uh, it's it's not going to kind of uh, be a long-term solution because obviously they only last so long, don't they? Exactly. Okay, cool. So we kind of ran through what LVAD is and and kind of who it is and and well the, the target audience for them and why they might have them. Um. Yeah, so after the patient's had these LVADs then, um, I've got some notes that says that they're discharged with quite an extensive package of like familiarisation and training and they're going to have like their family and friends that know a little bit about like how to use them and and, and the kind of the procedures for um, troubleshooting, which is quite useful for for us, isn't it, I guess, um, on scene. It's just hoping that the family and friends are going to be there when, (laughs) if or when there's a troubleshooting problem.
1: That's it. And that's, um, you know, our main goal when we implant a BAD, one of the, firstly, when we assess people to check if we can even consider them to be eligible to get a BAD or a transplant is we're assessing to make sure that they do have adequate social support so that if they're not the most reliable character or perhaps if they're, um, you know, have some problems with, um, language or educational background and perhaps we think that they might struggle a little bit with the complexity of learning about the VAD we we really have to be confident that they've got a good social network of people around them that could look after it should they not be able to look after it themselves um so if that patient does meet that criteria and has you know either is you know reliable themselves um and also has a good friend or a partner or a child, you know, somebody who's old enough to um, help them look after the bad. We, prior to COVID, would do training every day, every working day with that family to make sure that not only the patient is competent to look after mm. the bad, but also the family members. Um, it's been complicated, obviously, with COVID. We can't just bring people as much as we used to like to. But we do have... Um, on our QE website, if you just type into Google, QEHB LVAD, Mm -hmm. uh, funded some videos, um, which is good teaching material. So quite often we'll direct the relatives who are at home and can't come in due to COVID,
0: we'll direct
1: those videos so they can learn how to do the dressing, learn what the alarms mean, um, how to troubleshoot, how to do, do a controller change, all of those things. Um, And we send all of the patients home with an emergency pack. So that if they did have to call the paramedic service, (laughs) in theory, they have their pack ready to go to hand over to say, you um, you know, this is what it is, please call this number and somebody's on call 24 hours a day to help figure out what the problem is. Um, we also offer every GP practice or community heart failure team the opportunity to have teaching with us but unfortunately I think due to time constraints and things like that. Yeah
0: don't... and what's been going on the past kind of 24 months with, with COVID and stuff it's it's changed everything hasn't it really? Yeah
1: that's it. That's it. But we're they call, more...
0: Do they call it a patient specific protocol is that is that something that sounds like it rings bells?
1: Exactly. I mean, we're trying to at the moment standardize some national guidelines for like attendances to ED with bad patients. That's something that we're working on as a national team. In fact, have a meeting in London at the end of the month um, where we're going to try and standardize some goals. But otherwise, all of our patients have their own specific target INR range, depending on whether they've had any sort of problems with GI bleeding or whether they've had a stroke or anything like that. Um, And everything really is tailored to our patient. But the pump itself, once you kind of understand the mechanics of how it works, it should work in theory the same with everybody. What we do give the patients is, um, you know, I wouldn't expect a a girl of my size to have the same flow as a guy who's like six foot three or whatever. So all our patients have set parameters that we set them before they're discharged home of what seems to be normal readings for them with the bad, Mm -hmm. So that's written down in their little green book. Um, So all of them have their own sort of bespoke um, readings that we aim for. Yeah,
0: because they're going to have like deranged observations, aren't they? Like their blood pressure and things like that, like you said, it's going to be a lot lower than what you find in like a a normal patient.
1: That's it. We aim for a map and we aim for a map of 70 to 90 with the doppler blood pressure. We don't like patients to be hypertensive with the VAD. We find that those patients that are running hypertensive have lots of problems with microbleeds in the GI system, um, which may cause problems, may not cause problems, but the last thing we want is somebody presenting to their little DGH with, you know, Melina or something. We really don't want anybody to have to be stuck in that situation. So Mm. um, we try to tailor it as much as possible to try and counteract The risk
0: factors. Why would it cause a a GI bleed if it's like is that because there's just too much blood going through the system or?
1: Yeah so what they would say is that because the blood pressure is impacted by the pressure that's exerted with the bad as well it Uh tends to cause little like capillaries to just burst all over the gut Mm. and it seems to cause really slow trickling and the patient just notices over time that you know they're losing blood and then their HP is low and we we quite often find that our patients need IV iron replenishments and things like that. It, it, it's something that the GI consultant noticed, actually, when he was doing regular sort of, o, you know, OGDs on our patients, um, because they were all complaining of the same thing, this sort of malaise and very small amounts of fresh blood. And it mm. just like, a pressure related thing with the bad.
0: Can we go through? Um complications that like we've already talked about bleeding and things with the GI tract um, kind of I, I've got sort of jotted down four um, of the kind of main complications to look out for as part of LVAD so I'll just kind of run you through what I've got and please do tell me if I'm, if I'm wrong because I'm, t- I'm telling you to suck eggs here probably but um, <laughs> uh, so I've got just bleeding like you mentioned um, due to high blood flows and high blood pressures causing micro tears like you said likely to be GI tract infection Post-implantation, and I've got pump thrombosis, so just like little uh, coagulations forming within the actual pump itself, and strokes. Um, when well, I did some research into it, that the patients who are fitted with VADs um, are at increased risk of like thrombosis or thrombolytic events because they're kind of. Uh, they're hypercoagulable, kind of due to the actual implantation of the device causing inflammation or activating like tissue factors, causing platelet aggregation. So you get that they're more likely to have a stroke. or
1: Yeah. So uh, particularly with the heartmate Two. So the old heartmate that we used to be here, we've got about five patients that are living with a heartmate two now. Um so that's not, not really very many, considering we have about 97 living LVAD patients just from Birmingham. Um, they had lots of problems with with clots. Um, and it was because of the ball bearings in the the actual pump of the HeartMate too. They were finding that that was the ball bearings were kind of smashing up the red blood cells and causing more literal clots to be sort of um, expelled all over the place. The HeartMate 3 has a biolithic coating, so actually we're noticing far less incidences of that. Um, The main problem, when we are finding patients having a big clot in the pump, that's due to non-compliance with warfarin, really. Um, The only patients that I know that have had problems with the clotting... um, have let their INR go out of range and haven't Mm. followed it up properly and you know taken the Clexane as and when we advise them that they should if they've got a history of AF for example um so it's it's far less common with the HeartMate 3s now which is the device that we're implanting and have been implanting for a few years now.
0: Are all these patients who uh, have the VAD insert going to be on anticoagulants like warfarin or Clexane?
1: Forever, Yeah. yeah. Um, so the warfarin will be forever. We choose the warfarin obviously because it's reversible. Um, it's easier to manage. Um, if they've had a, if if they've got known AF, we would also say that when their INR drops below two, they must have plexane cover as well, just to help prevent that risk even further. Um, stroke wise, I mean. I mean, obviously, it's a risk really with just being on long term warfarin, Um, it would really only, the only instances I've really known is either if it unfortunately happens within the operation itself, um, and there's some sort of incident within the op, or if the patient falls and has some sort of incidental, you know, stroke because they are on the anticoagulants and then had a medical fall or something. the main side effects, side effects, as it were, that I would really say that we stress to the patients are most of our patients. Obviously, we're not replacing the heart. The The, the LVAD itself does a great job of doing the job of the left ventricle. But that myocardium is still irritable. And if they've had problems with arrhythmias, prior to having the LVAD inserted, that's still a big risk for the patients afterwards. Um, so they still keep their ICD in if they had an ICD or you know CRTD or whatever, um, prior to having the LVAD inserted. And we would say that if they're in an arrhythmia and they need a shock, that they should have it um, because what we don't want to see is them developing RV failure because they've just been walking around in VF and that's mm-hmm. what's crazy about LVAD patients is that, um, you know, they could be quite easily just walking around in VF and feel a, a little bit rubbish, but not how you would expect a patient in a life mm-hmm. threatening ventricular arrhythmia, but because the bad keeps going despite that, you know, often that they able are able to compensate. So, um, that that's another big thing that I always warn the patients about is to just keep an eye on whether they're having any palpitations, letting us know as early as they can, so that we can do a device download or something, and you know either tweak their medications or you know, cardiovert. So that's that's a big one, another side effect that we think about with the the bad.
0: Mm, yeah, that's um, that's really interesting, isn't it? Like you said, they could be in um, VF or VT, and they're still, they're still walking around. compensating really well for it
1: you know we took a call recently actually from a patient who thought she was um you know i would hope that you would see it reflected in the flows if they were in a dangerous arrhythmia or something so one of our patients called having had low flow event um and i think the danger really is to assume that it's dehydration that's what we don't want to happen is the patients who are known heart failure patients and always are so focused on fluid balance charts and things like that? Mm-hmm. They just assume that um, you know if they if they've self imposed uh, fluid restriction on themselves, which we often find that they do as well. Um, they think that if they have a low flow event, then that's because they're dehydrated, whereas actually it could be that they've blown their right ventricle, and then when they go and drink three litres of water to try and sort out the low flow they're just making it worse um so rather than calling us for advice sometimes I find that they call me in retrospect saying I have drank about five more liters and you know I'm still getting the low flow alarms and I'm like why did you not call me earlier um but that's one yeah so we tend to teach them the main we we say five things so A, B, C, D, and then RV failure shoved on the end. So we say arrhythmia could be a cause of a low flow event. And, you know, the main thing that we worry about, bleeding, clots, dehydration, because it is technically a reason why they could have a problem with the pump. RV failure. Um, um, Yeah, it's just a matter of trying to figure out really what the patient's symptoms are and what really is the main um, thing that could be... Going on with them at that
0: time that they call. Mm. Okay, that's that's really helpful. So, um, what was I going to mention? We've kind of gone through a little bit of uh, cardiac rhythm management. So, if they're in VT or VF, um, we guys on the road should be kind of contacting the local LVAD centre and chatting to you guys and getting the patient in for a rapid um, assessment after we kind of liaise with you. Yeah. Um, at hospital like you said they'll probably receive immediate defibrillation or, or cardioversion or if their icd's gone off like you said that will kind of be um be looked into when you have the tapes reviewed from that and see what's gone on that's
1: it that's it and you know usually uh, even if they've not had their defib implanted here our team if they can try and help interrogate the device they will do Um, you know, a lot of our patients now do have the home monitoring um, equipment so that they can send in a reading. Um, I guess the biggest problem from your point of view is that there is so much artefact on an ECG when you take a ECG on an LVAD patient. And unfortunately, that's just unavoidable. Um, I think that usually you can still tell if there's a broad or bizarre complex underneath the interference, because it does literally look like your classic interference if Um, you know same as if you know the patient was wiggling about loads or brushing their teeth or something on a telemetry so you can usually tell if there's if it's just interference or whether it's something more sinister Um, but I I do admit it's very hard to see if the patient's in a sinus rhythm or something when they've got an LVAD yeah to just look at your patient as well and try and figure out um, yeah putting the pieces together
0: You mentioned about, like, um, fluid levels and, like, uh, people feeling as though they're um, hypo—well, not hypo, they're feeling dehydrated, that the patient might be potentially hypovolemic, and that's maybe one problem that we might have when we go out to see them on the road. Um, So, can we just, like, quickly talk about, like, how we might manage that from a paramedic perspective on the way, because I think, like, a few people might be a bit like, oh, do we give them loads of fluid, do we not? Because, like you said, we've got to be careful not to try and potentiate, like, sort of a right-sided— compromise have not we right, ventric- right ventricular compromise
1: so i think in that instance the best thing to do is always to call us because we know the patients pretty well and we'll be able to remember um you know it's very embarrassing actually that uh, even though we've got like 97 odd patients i could probably tell you if you named someone whether they've had problems with their rv or whether they're known to have arrhythmias because you do just kind of become like you know uh, they become like your you know, best friends, really, in a way. Mm. So we know them really well. And, it, you know, even if we don't have immediate access to the portal system to check whether actually we have them on a lot of diuretics, and it, it would be dangerous to give them fluids, it's always better to check with us, because if we're worried, and we're not sure, or we've got no access to the computer, it doesn't take us long to call the consultant and just double check management. But I would I would always say that if you're concerned about hypovolemia before you just whack a load of fluids up call us first because it could be any one of the other things that's causing the patient to to have low flows and to be feeling terrible yeah. Um, so yeah just just give us a shout you know it's a 24-hour service so um we're more than happy to take your call
0: quickly if we just go through because in like our management for it, it's like jr calc's actually got jr calc's the ambulance i'm sure you know it's probably the the, the main Stay guidelines we use in the ambulance service. Um, it's actually got a lot of really useful resources in it. Yeah. It's got a lot of really good algorithms and uh, flow diagrams to use for these patients. So, for the paramedics listening, then yeah, definitely go and check out GRCalc. Um, but I think, you know, your point as well, just calling you guys as well quickly um, as you arrive with these patients, it, that's going to be one of the main helpful factors, isn't it, in assessment? Yeah,
1: I think so. And then, you know, I, I, I absolutely will hold my hands up and say sometimes you know when we get calls we can occasionally be like i don't know how to help you assess this particular situation because unless it's something obvious if we can't see the patient it's really really tricky um but we'll do our best if if we think it's something that we could advise on we certainly will try to um usually it will be a mechanical issue with the pump that is our specific speciality Um, because we obviously know what the alarms mean and whether it's a do something now alarm or whether it's actually I think that's more of a hardware thing and the Mm -hmm. patient just come into our clinic tomorrow and we'll sort it out then you know there's um you know as a minimum I think that that's something we could help with
0: yeah Yeah. um it okay if I just kind of run just one of the algorithms just run through this one because this is like a really good overview of just what to do a um like the start of assessing these patients, at a uh, a deterioration, if you like, or a collapse, maybe, that they might call with. So the the start of the algorithm is we receive the emergency call, patients collapsed or they have deteriorated. Um, So we should be trying to get a hold of the LVAD centre, but don't delay um, emergency treatment whilst doing this. The next part of the algorithm is is just your standard ABC um, assessment. So assess for the airway, check for signs of life don't place too much emphasis on feeling for a pulse because as we kind of mentioned there's not um, these patients aren't really going to have very good palpable pulses are they?
1: In fact most of them you cannot feel a pulse at all. Yeah. Often we worry if we can feel a pulse because actually it probably means that they're hypertensive so mm-hmm. um, I would say not to expect a pulse at all.
0: Yeah. Real. Um, um, B. So there's going to be three scenarios that are either going to be unresponsive and not breathing normally. Um, they're going to be unresponsive and breathing normally or hopefully they're going to be responsive and breathing normally. <laughs> um, and then from there, there's just various bits to go through. So is there an alarm ringing out? If the answer is no, then we place a stethoscope over the heart and listen for any humming or audible sounds to see if the LVAD's kind of still um, going around doing its thing. Um, if the answer is yes, then that takes you through to another another algorithm then. If the is no, then we have got to assume LVAD, LVAD failure and kind of go through to the cardiac arrest algorithm and, and take it down that kind of route. If the patient is unresponsive but breathing normally or they are responsive and breathing normally, um, we do our usual breathing checks. So just checking for hypoxia and listen to the chest if you can ascultate. Um And then we got to listen for these loud Alarms or from the external controllers. So again, the same as before. If the answer is no, we can't sort of uh, hear any of these alarms beating. Then we've got to have a listen over the heart and here we can see if we can hear any humming or not. If the answer is no or yes, that takes you through to either different algorithms based off off that. Does that sound kind of? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, The key thing that we teach the patients as well, patients relative in particular, because probably the patient's going to be feeling dreadful if they're in a point where they're, um, you know, the pump isn't working, is that the HeartMate 3, which, and the HeartMate 2, the HeartMate in general, um, should always have a green light on the front of the controller that should be on 24-7. So Mm -hmm. if you ever got to a patient and they weren't feeling well or they were not responsive, Um, hopefully there would be somebody else there that would be able to say to you, the green light is off or you'd call us and we'd say, is the green light off on the controller? Because sometimes it could be as simple as actually the pump has stopped working for some unknown mechanical reason and we need to put them on their spare controller. All of our patients have a spare controller that they're supposed to carry around with them 24-7. So you know the logistical things, if the things that the patient can't control, as it were, so if it wasn't your your standard, you know, reversible, you know, um, causes of cardiac arrest would be if they'd run out of battery power and had not had spare batteries with them or they're nowhere near a power source. And actually the pump has stopped because it's not receiving power anymore. We tell them to carry two spare batteries around with them at all times. And we also tell them to carry the spare controller so that they or somebody else, if the green light was ever off, could do a controller change. And to check that's the reason why they feel terrible is because the pump has stopped. Um, We don't really know how the patient will feel if the pump has stopped. We have to assume that they're going to, you know, lose circulation and, um, you know, go into a rest. But I have had patients walking around um and their pump has stopped and the only reason we've known about the pump stoppage is because when they come to clinic and plug them into our monitor and review all of their data, we see these very scary alarms coming up saying pump stop. And we're like, did you not notice that? Did you not feel a bit <laughs> well? And they've, you know, sort of had to say to us in a very, you know, blase way that actually, oh yeah, I did feel a bit strange, but I didn't, you know, think anything of it. Whereas I've had patients before that um have disconnected their driveline for whatever reason um, and have immediately, you know, lost consciousness. And, you know, Mm. I've got a patient who um, got tangled up with his VAD in bed and um, thought rather than trying to untangle himself, which would be the sensible thing to do and what we would teach them to do. um, He thought the quicker thing to do would be to disconnect the driveline and just untangle it and put it back in again. Mm. Um, Before he could do that. Uh, his he lost consciousness and his 13 year old son ran into the room because the bad was alarming and had to put the drive line back in so we really don't know how these patients are going to feel if the pump were to stop so it's it's that happy medium of trying to figure out is it an organic cause that's causing your patient to be unresponsive and you know, have no cardiac output? Or is it a mechanical? Is it literally that there's a pump, mm-hmm. pump and actually if we put the new controller on, would it just kickstart again?
0: Yeah. But that's Absolutely. why. <laughs> I think that's why they kind of encourage us to do a good like A2E assessment yeah. anyway, isn't it? Because, you know, to, to consider other causes anyway that might be, like you said, an organic cause behind the patient deteriorating or going into a cardiac arrest. Yeah. Um, to kind of round off, Can we, uh, I know it's been a bit of a wishful stop tour, but um, it's been so useful, but thanks so much for for, for having a chat with us about it. Can we talk about when the patient does go into cardiac arrest and cardiac arrest management and considerations for these patients? Because considering, first of all, have these patients got any like advanced directives or have they got any um, DNRs and respect forms and things like that in place? But, then there's also the other side to it if they haven't that we do have to actively management and actively treat and then just how do we do that
1: yeah so that's the tricky bit really is that at the moment not one of our patients uh, actually no that's not true one of our patients is officially palliative and if you know in the event that he is deteriorating to the point where somebody's going to call it um you know we we are there to advise the family or whoever attends how to turn the pump off but for most of our patients it's very much a patient by patient and how they clinically are at that point so what I would say is obviously do your assessment assume that they're for full resus unless the patient's family tell you otherwise um, you know it's not for any further intervention otherwise um, it would be calling us really because there are patients that we know are in and out still with you know having admissions for end-stage heart failure despite having the LVAD so in those situations were they in a heap and it's obvious that their kidneys and their liver are going off and all that sort of stuff as well Mm. you know then we would chat to the consultants and say how far do we want them to push this you know is actually the right time to be saying let's make the patient comfortable
0: yeah absolutely
1: again, we would be able to be around to advise what would happen if needed with the pump. Mm-hmm. Um, but from a resus point of view itself, I mean, the, the first thing I would say is to check that the pump is definitely working, to assess whether it's an arrhythmia that's causing the issue and shock if needed. Um, you can technically do CPR on a patient with a BAD. Obviously, there's the risk of dislodging the pump. It's pretty well sewn in there. And I suppose... If you're at the point where you've ruled everything else out and, you know, the patient has arrested, I guess it's worth a go at that point because Mm -hmm. you've got nothing to lose. But if we've ruled out that the pump is on um, and it's not um, a rhythm issue, you know, it's I think the consultants would say it's worth a go um, to try and get the patient back, really. Um, I think it's a classic thing in cardiology, isn't it, that we don't like to give up on people. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a very fine line when it comes to end stage heart failure. Um, but yes, yeah, certainly there's people that I know that are on our list of patients that we know that they're having these recurrent admissions and we know that, you know, at some point it's, you know, going to be their last admission. As it were, so, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, Joe Kalk's got a pretty good um, summary of, of, of the chest compressions because, like you said, there's kind of risk and benefit isn't there, to um, whether or not to like chest compressions should be performed because, like you said, there's a risk of dislodging or or damaging the the VAD itself. Joe Kalk's stance on it is that, the, what they say there's a controversy as to whether or not chest compressions should be applied. And disagreement centers around safety. Um, efficacy and when to start the chest compressions as part of the recess. Um, but their, their overall um, evidence summary at the JL Calcus found is that the the evidence of compression in the presence of an LVAD uh, is tenuous but it says long periods of chest compressions were associated with poor outcomes, however short periods of compressions appeared to be associated with favourable outcomes and in keeping in with the low risk of harm an LVAD patient receiving CPR briefly, um, provided treatment of the cause of circulatory arrest is not delayed, then the reason it's reasonable to conclude that the balance of risk versus pros, um, the delivery of high-quality chest compressions by paramedics to LVAD patients is uh, it is worth performing them
1: and we would certainly be in agreement with that. Unfortunately, it's just such a tricky area with these patients because, you know, there's not many of them in the UK in the grand scheme of things. And, um you know, I I like to think that we would catch the patients before they have these events at home. But of course, you know, that doesn't always happen. And we have had horrible, you know, probably very traumatized paramedics, you know, calling and saying, you know, I think that they're definitely not with us anymore. And, you know, Mm -hmm. it's really tricky when you're attached to a mechanical pump that sort of keeps going, despite the fact that the patient's obviously not not here anymore. And. Yes it can, it can be tricky and I would say just you know don't be a stranger to calling. And,
0: um, yeah again it's yeah it's just getting someone getting someone to get, get on the phone in it. good time isn't it. Is it okay if I kind of go through the, the GR Calc algorithm again step by step just so if anyone is listening to this they can kind of get a good uh, structured approach. So is the patient in VT or VF and you've already quite rightly said that if they are then yes they can they can be defibrillated by, by ourselves on the scene. After this, you know, if they come into a normal rhythm or, or they're, they're now a signs of life again, go back to your ATV assessment. Yeah. If the patient is not in BT or VF, then it's it's going down to your circulatory assessment. So is their circulation adequate? If it's no, then we consider CPR um, assess for hypovolemia. Um, consider fluids and then assess, you do your usual um, disability and exposure assessments. So AVPU, pupils, blood sugars, and only 4Hs and 4Ts assessments as well. Yeah. Um, it's where the specific VAD centre cannot be contacted. Um, ambulance crews should contact sort of our own operations centre, our own control and attempts can be made from our our, our control, our dispatch to kind of contact the local bad centre for advice or support if we can't rapidly get in touch with you on scene, because our our control should have all the numbers and contact info for you guys anyway
1: yeah i would really hope so um i mean to be honest with you all of our patients have a sticker on the back of the controller with our mobile number on um so that's the same number 24 hours a day we just divert it between whoever is the lucky person that gets to be on call for that night um so it's always the same number and all of the patients should have that sticker both on their main and their spare controller um so it's I'd be horrified if you tried to call and you couldn't get through to us Mm -hmm. Um, but otherwise my best bet would be to um, you know call through to the QE or um, you know one of the other bad centres and ask to speak to a cardiothoracic surgeon or the cardiologist on call um, and see if they can advise you but really the bad I think all the bad coordinator services offer an emergency and you know you know, we, we know each other all quite well. Obviously, we all do different um, pumps. Um, so we're the only one that specifically just do HeartMate. I think a couple of the other centres do both HeartMate and HeartWare, and the others do HeartWear. Um, so I really wouldn't know how to triage um, a HeartWear patient. Mm. But certainly a heartmate, even if it was for a patient out of the area um, you know, that wasn't known to me. If somebody needed advice about what to do with a heartmate, I I would still happily give it um and then direct them towards the centre in case there's specific, you know, instructions for that patient that I'm not aware of. Um yeah. certainly from a logistical point of view, you know, the pumps in theory should act and work the same way. So um, certainly but there'll be somebody that you can get through to. Um,
0: yeah. yeah, I think I think that kind of rounds up all the topics that I wanted to run through. I know it's a whistle-stop tour, but it's a massive, massive um, topic, isn't it? And there's obviously so much to it and you've, you've, you've got your whole career dedicated to it and <laughs> us paramedics, it's it's just uh, a, a very, very small percentage of what we do deal with. But certainly one of those things that's worth having some knowledge on and knowing what it is and just a brief outline of what it's about so that when we do go to these patients, we can um, we can try and do the best for them. And I think the take home message really for me from, from this chat with yourself is, uh, I think take home message for anyone listening to this should be just try and keep calm and not to panic.
1: Absolutely. Call us. Call us for advice. And actually, to be honest with you, my best advice would be is if you're at all worried about the conscious status of your patient, Um, and they have the luxury of being with a relative who understands the bad irrespective of what your local hospital rules are with Covid and all that stuff I would say that an exception should be made that that relative should be with the patient because absolutely how to work that bad if that if our patient loses consciousness my main concern and the main thing that I think is a horrible stress for the small hospitals and yourselves who don't see them all the time is feeling like you're you're having to deal with this patient when you don't even know what the pump is. We don't want you guys to have to deal with that. So that's why if a relative can go with them, even if our patient's not particularly responsible, say, let's say, worst case scenario, they'd had a stroke or something and couldn't communicate with you about the pump. There should be somebody else who at least knows how to change their power source. Or the
0: batteries or or what the alarms mean, there could be all sorts of weird humming and alarms and buzzes going off that we don't know what yeah it represents.
1: exactly. We don't want you know some poor nurses on a CCU somewhere that have never even heard of an L to have to try and figure out how to look after a patient when you know um, normally the relative will be like, "Please let me come in, I can help. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that would be a take home message also.
0: yeah, I think just c- contact you guys as early as possible or if if you can't get in touch with them for whatever reason, that's quite unlikely anyway, but um, call control or dispatch and they should be able to sort out something. Um, Look at JRCalc Calc um, on the way, or if on scene as well, just refer to that because the algorithms as mentioned are are quite useful for us. They're quite um, simplistic just to follow and and quite sort of obvious in their pattern. And um, yeah, I think the main home take home message is to contact yourselves early on because you're going to be able to provide that accurate information aren't you about the patients that you're going to have well like you said you've got quite a good close working relationship with these patients
1: and another thing that i would say is if anybody does listen to the podcast has a particular interest or you know, wants to just know more because they've come across a bad patient before and they found it frightening or whatever. Um, You know, we're more than happy to do teaching sessions for people as and when the staffing allows it. So if anybody wants a a teaching session or wants me to email them some information, um, I'm Philippa Doherty. You can contact me at the QE. I'm happy to send some info your way or do a teaching session. You know we, we really do want people to feel comfortable with these devices so um you know whatever we can do to try and help facilitate that we're happy to do so um yeah if anyone's listening and wants some more info just get in touch
0: well thanks so much for for joining us on, the, on, on well, coming to do the recording for the podcast it's uh it's really appreciated i can't thank you enough it's been so helpful As always, thank you so much for listening to the show. Um, if you have enjoyed the show, you can follow us on Twitter at MedicMiddle. And uh, by all means, do send us a tweet and let us know if you enjoyed the show and uh, any future topics you would like us to address. Many thanks again to Philippa from the QE um, for taking the time to talk to us on the show about Elvad today. Again, thank you for listening and see you next time.